Hey, I'm Tom Power. I'm the host of the podcast Q with Tom Power, where we talk to all kinds of artists, actors, writers, musicians, painters. We had Green Day on the other day talking about their huge album, American Idiot. Nicole Byer came on to talk about ADHD and comedy. And then there's Dan Levy. While we were talking about filmmaking, we talked about his insecurities. I sometimes feel like I have this desire to, like, perform, to be a version of myself that people might like. Listen to Q with Tom Power to hear your favorite artists as they truly are wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Nora Young. This is Spark. Tell me, what does it mean to be human in this particular technological moment? It can seem like conventional measures of what's true, permanent, and, well, human are up for grabs in the face of rapidly advancing tech. And if there's no special spark that truly separates us from other animals or our technological creations, does it matter? That's what we'll try to answer in our 10-part series, Being Human Now. In the third episode, Intimacy. Humans are intensely social creatures who crave intimacy, and we've long used communications tech to extend and express our intimate feelings. There are 5,000-year-old references to love letters in ancient India. The Roman philosopher Seneca chose to write his famous Letters from a Stoic as a series of letters to a friend. In World War I, soldiers and their parents sent telegrams to each other to allay worry. And yet today, we create, nourish, and end intimacy in hybrid spaces— partly digital, partly physical. Electronic communication collapses time and space in ways unimaginable even a generation ago. But the very ease of that communication also creates confusion. To be close or not with someone is to be in a dance of modes of digital communication, looking for meanings in emojis, forwarded video clips, and DMs. It can also be a lifeline. We saw the incredible necessity of technology during the pandemic. So much, you know, relational space was covered through technology and we needed it so badly. But in some ways, it's also eroded some of the relational fabric that we so need to survive. This is Stephanie Tong. I am an associate professor of communication at Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan. And I'm also the director of the social media and relational technologies, the smart labs there. Stephanie founded the Smart Labs nearly 10 years ago in an effort to keep pace with how social media and technology were making their way into our relational lives. So kind of the intersection of people and how they use technology to develop relationships, uh, maintain existing ones, and even to dissolve relationships because things don't always last forever. She and her team look at a wide range of communication phenomena, including online dating and how it's changing people's patterns of initiation. Early on, right? So, for example, dating apps and sites were kind of stigmatized. It's kind of like where if you were a loser in real life, it's where you would go to date. But now they've really changed. Um, I think they've become the go-to place for romantic singles to find each other and connect. And so it's almost like You're missing out if you're not on these apps. And lately, that's kind of created almost a sense of obligation for a lot of romantic singles that if I'm not online, then, you know, I won't be finding the right person because that's where all the action is. 
Um, so we've done a series of studies on that to kind of think about how it's changed the ways we think about uh, mate selection and relationship initiation and how we're getting together. Um, we've done a line of studies that looks at how people use social media to also maintain relationships. And I think, you know, early on when we started this work, it was kind of a novel idea. And then COVID came and suddenly we all had to use social media to maintain our relationships, even ones that we thought were very proximal or close by um, because we weren't seeing each other. And so we, we relied very heavily on social media to maintain ties and even reignite relationships that maybe were dormant for a while. Um, and so we've looked at how friends and family members use social media to maintain relationships. And what what about that, the termination phase? I mean, I think we, we can all imagine using these digital tools to connect with people who become we become intimate with, but what about the termination phase and, and how it often doesn't get as much attention? Yeah, you're right. Um, we don't like to think about relationships ending, <laughs> but sometimes they do. Mm -hmm. um, so we've looked at some of that, um, those dynamics as well, how people think about breaking up. So it used to be, right, I pack up my stuff, I clean out my side of the closet, and I'm out. Um, but these days, it's a little bit harder. You have to disentangle your online life as well. You know, we have pictures and photos and you know, all of this content online that kind of is your relational history and to have to disentangle that can also be tricky. And were there any particular examples of, I don't know, maybe surprising or noteworthy ways that people have to navigate the digital aspect of, of breaking up? Yeah. So um, we've talked to some people who talk about how they have to delete their profiles and start over. They just want a clean slate. <laughs> um other people who we've talked to some of our students, it's like almost a race who can break up faster online and change their status to single faster in that kind of way. It's almost a, a public declaration that it's over. Mm -hmm. But we've also talked to people who maybe they've had a long term relationship and they've always been known as, you know, partner X and partner Y. And suddenly they have to announce to their shared social network, their friends that we're no longer together. And that can be tricky to do, you know, on these one-on-one -on -one settings. And so some people have actually taken to social media to put out kind of almost like a public relations statement. You know, after many years of, of marriage, we are no longer together, kind of almost like you see celebrities doing. Yeah. But it's also a tactic that a lot of kind of everyday people are using as well. I'm just thinking about how that kind of thing can also involve the broader circles of their community. I mean, I had two friends who had an amicable breakup recently. And we also were in group chats together. And now the whole process of like one person leaving the group chat, it's awkward. And suddenly it's, it's even though it was an amicable breakup, it's not just about the two of them. It's about them plus the community of people that they're digitally connected to. Absolutely. That's a great example. And I think what you articulated there, it almost shows us how visible, right, in a very visible way that relationships are not conducted in a vacuum, right? There's mm -hmm. all these friends and families that we have to think about, but media somehow makes it much more visible. You know, I remove this person from this thread or I have to start a new group chat without this person can feel very different. Yeah. Do you think that people tend to underestimate how intertwined their relational lives are with digital technology? That's a great question. Um, yeah, to a certain extent, because I like to say that, you know, technology is good when it's invisible, when you don't have to think about it, when it's functioning really well, right? When you have to pay attention to it, it often means that something is not right or something new or novel that catches your attention or changes your expectations. And so 
yeah, when people break up, right, that can be a time when we have to suddenly pay attention to these things that we weren't really paying attention to. Mm -hmm. I know that you've done some research on the channels that people choose when they're communicating with family, friends and loved ones digitally. So what did you learn about how sort of intentional people are when it comes to their media selection? Yeah. So um, with regard to like romantic relationships, a lot of these kind of get started on the apps, right? Or get started on websites. But there's a, a real kind of push to migrate off of those initial platforms and into, I guess, what's seen as more intimate forms of communication, like text messaging or, you know, email or phone calls or now video. And it's a sense that the media itself can also convey a sense of Oh, we're taking a step here. We're exchanging exchanging right. phone right. numbers, you know. So right. we're we're taking it to the next level, um, but in a technologically mediated fashion. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And do people have to actually sort of negotiate how where they're going to meet technologically? I mean, for example, I really hate actually talking on the phone. I hate it, but you know, some people love it, right? So if you're going to be close to somebody, you're going to have to navigate that difference in how you choose to communicate. Yeah. So I think that's also part of the kind of relational communication, right? Is that you figure out which channels you use for which things, right? I've I've had some people tell me, you know, I don't like getting phone calls these days because it, it makes me feel like something immediately bad is going to happen. Like bad news comes through phone calls because nobody picks up the phone anymore unless it's an absolute emergency. Whereas other people prefer the intimacy of a phone call because mm -hmm. we don't get to hear it as often. So often we're reading messages. But other people prefer text messages where they can think about what they say and compose a message before they send it. Um, so yeah, it's all kind of now built into the ways that we communicate relationally. I'm Nora Young, and today on Spark, we're talking about intimacy as part of our occasional series, being human now. Right now, my guest is Stephanie Tong, founder and director of the Smart Labs at Wayne State University. The heart of our research is the intersection of technology and human relationships. So in a time when nearly all our close relationships are hybrid, how is communications tech changing the way we understand and experience intimacy? Sometimes it actually deepens our relationship. I tell you things in a text message or I write a letter that I would never say to your face, right? And that can actually have a really positive effect on a relationship. And I think in other ways, though, it can be really a distancing feature, right? It's easy for me to avoid you if all I have to do is just put silence my phone. So easy to avoid having those conversations if I never have to confront you in person. So, you know, it can bring out different dynamics in different ways. Yeah. Can we follow that up a little bit? What about ghosting? Like this ability to just disappear for as long as we choose whenever we don't want to deal with something, you know, in person or, or even over the phone. Yeah. That's become another kind of technological way we can head into avoidance. <laughs> and it's a kind of a easier one to execute, right? So for example, it's really hard to reject someone in person or refuse, you know, refuse someone's request in person in the moment, you know, it comes, it's fraught with communicative difficulty. Whereas it's really easy for me to just hit delete or <laughs> just not reply, right? I had a student actually who did his entire dissertation projects on the nature of rejections and particularly in online dating where ghosting is so common. 
And what he noticed is that there's kind of these, they're very small rejections, right? I send you a hello message and you don't reply. I move on to the next person. But kind of what he noticed in people's experiences is that those add up. So if you keep getting that same level of ghosting and rejection, they're, they're very small, but um, they add up and they can create a big impact. Yeah. Yeah. What do you make of relationships that may have intimacy in person, but not technologically, right? Like the good friend who only sends you reels with no context or anything, or vice versa, where people have, you know, what do they call it? Textation ships where, they, you know, there's a lot of digital communication, but maybe it doesn't feel as intimate in person. Yeah. I mean, I think that's part of bridging that mixed mode divide, right? Is that if the norm for a relational pair has always been, well, we send these great text messages or we have these really fun conversations online, but then when we actually meet up in person, it feels kind of awkward and we have to get over that, right? Um, it's almost like flexing muscles in that sense, because we're not used to it. And we have to kind of build those capillaries up over again. Um, but the same can be said, right, for, you know, I'm sure we all have that friend that we haven't seen in in years. And then we get together and it's like, no time has passed. And we just pick up right where we left off. But maybe it's because you have those deep embedded kind of muscle memory when it comes to communication. And it's easy for you to kind of fall back into that relational pattern with someone that you know and love. Yeah. Can you tell me about one of the Smart Labs studies that looked at uh, dating burnout or what you described as the darker sides of intimacy? Yeah. So um, I think this is a phenomenon that's definitely come around more recently, especially with the popularity of dating apps where, you know, a lot of singles feel like I have to be on these apps or I'm going to miss out. But what that's done is it's kind of created almost this sense of obligation where people feel like I have to be swiping, I have to be checking my profile, I have to be messaging all these people or I'll miss something, I'll miss my soulmate. But that's led to, I think, kind of a backlash where people feel really kind of tired. They're burnt out, they they can't do it anymore. They, they miss the kind of intimacy that comes from face-to-face -face communication, especially, I think, after COVID. And so that sense of burnout has led to some interesting side effects, I think. One is we're seeing, I think, a return back to in-person connection and initiation. Another one is that we've investigated more thoroughly is kind of a whole cottage industry of virtual assistants. So just like you can, you know, call up an Uber or get a DoorDash or find a dog walker, right, in the gig economy, you can also do this for your online dating profile. So if you don't have time to manage your own Tinder profile, you can hire someone to help you do that. So sort of a Cyrano de Bergerac <laughs> kind of quality. Yeah. Very much. Yeah. Does any part of you fear that technology might one day replace the human need for intimacy in real life? Um, no. I mean, you know, I, I think about that just because of the business that I'm in and I'm seeing, you know, things come down the line like chat GPT or other kind of VR, you know, developments, which are very exciting. But I just think people are people where uh, humans are a very social species. That's what makes us, right, so unique. And we're always going to need that. I don't think anyone can survive without a constant relational need, right? It's in our blood. So I, I don't really have that fear because I think that's part of what makes us human. Mm -hmm. Stephanie, thanks so much for your insights on this. Thanks for having me. Stephanie Tong is an associate professor and the director of the Smart Labs at Wayne State University, and she's co-author of the book Up to Date, Communication and Technology in Romantic Relationships.
You are listening to Spark with Nora Young on CBC Radio. In an effort to communicate with others more effectively, some singles are turning to experts for texting advice. Lucky for them, texting dating courses are a thing. Nobody ever teaches us this stuff. Meet Kelsey Wonderland. I'm a licensed therapist, and now I'm also a dating coach. She creates online courses that help people navigate the art of texting in the dating world. You know, we've been very socialized to focus quite a lot on chemistry and spark and physical attraction, and those things are important, but they're certainly not enough on their own to really sustain a healthy relationship in the long term. A lot of questions Kelsey gets from her clients are things like... Who should text first after an initial date? How long should I wait? You know, is it okay to double text or triple text if they haven't responded? What do I do if I think I'm being ghosted? And the main issue that I see is the anxiety of all of that. So how do I actually stay calm and not jump to conclusions about what it means if they did or didn't put an emoji or they did or didn't text back on the same day or whatever the case may be? There's just such a lack of education in our society about communication in general. And texting communication just gets even more complex because there's so many interpretations, there's lag time. We have to be able to ask like, hey, you know, are you a big texter or you prefer to talk on the phone, you know, or what level of communication feels really good to you? I want to make sure that we both have our needs met as we develop this connection. Kelsey built her texting communication cure course based around questions she was getting from clients online and in one-on-one therapy. She says not everyone sees texting in the same way, so it's important to know the different types of texting styles before making assumptions about what a message means. So the dry texter would be somebody who gives pretty short responses because brevity is their priority. So they typically see the purpose for texting as logistics. So they might send you a text like the letter K and they are not mad at you. They have no intention of communicating anything with that. There's no meaning to it. It's just they're texting for logistics. Then you have kind of the opposite side of the spectrum, the animated texters. This person uses a lot of emojis, exclamation points. They may use LOL a lot, extra letters, um, not spell grammatically correctly. And they would be like the least likely kind of person to send you a text that just says K. And then the third type would be the compulsive texter. So this is the kind of person who might send 10 texts in a row, like rapid fire with one thought in each text. And they are likely to be by their phone often and respond instantly. And then the last one would be the absent-minded texter. So this person, you will find large gaps of time in between their texts. They may read a message and then forget to respond. They may randomly not be by their phone and have this kind of out of sight, out of mind mindset about their phone. And this can be seen in combination with that compulsive texter, actually, where they're either like they're sending you 10 messages in a row or they're very away from their phone. People are so afraid to ask early on about somebody's texting preferences. And then it just really comes back to bite them because 
it's much more tricky to discuss when you've formed a little bit of a connection. When you're asking right on the front end, it's really not about you and that's pretty evident to both parties. But as you get connected more and more, when you try to bring it up, that's where people get a fear of coming off as clingy or asking for too much or that it's about them. So I just really highly recommend doing so on the front end. But even if your digital communication styles fall effortlessly into alignment, it doesn't automatically mean that connection will translate to real life. There's always the chance of falling into a textationship. Textationships tend to happen because people really want that feeling of companionship, someone to talk to, someone who, you know, gives them some attention, but they may not have any intention of really creating a an in-person relationship or a committed relationship at all. Kelsey says it's best not to wait more than a week or two before meeting up in person. Her course also goes into how to spot texting red flags. If they want to know what you're doing and where you are at all times, that would be something to be very weary of because that can be a potential sign of later control and abuse. Similarly, if they punish you with silence over text, um, that would also be a potential sign for later abuse. And then another one would be if they get aggressive or passive aggressive when you don't text back immediately. Also, if they expect constant communication, I would say both of those things would be red flags. Finally, the course teaches how to calm down and avoid a spiral if you haven't heard back from someone or get a very short response and are starting to worry about what it means. What I recommend is first just naming your emotion that you're feeling, which sounds really basic, but I tell my clients not to skip this step just because simply validating and naming what you're feeling is grounding in and of itself in some ways. And then we really want to move into putting the phone down and self-soothing and grounding further through our body. So that would be through our five senses. It can be something like you know, using a weighted blanket or even a regular blanket, wrapping yourself up in that, lighting a candle and putting the light slow and doing some breathing or listening to meditation, going outside and putting your feet in the grass. It can be very basic things. And in fact, it should be because the part of the brain that helps us think critically goes completely offline when we are triggered emotionally. So we have to ground ourselves before we can really think our way through it. The next step would be to challenge your thoughts and to really ask yourself, what are the facts? And am I jumping to any conclusions here or making any assumptions that cannot be made based on observable facts? And then really in the end, regardless of why they haven't texted you back or they gave you a short message or they're not responding consistently, the question to ask yourself is, is this really working for me? Is this enough communication for me? And if it's not, it may be time to consider moving along. Kelsey Wonderland is a licensed therapist and dating coach based in Nashville. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer vital health questions that will help you thrive, like, what does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health 
without a family doctor. I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language, all in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nora Young, and this time on Spark, the third installment in our occasional series, Being Human Now. That's where we look at the parts of human existence that we once took to be distinctly human and examine how they're changing in today's technological moment. This time, intimacy. With social media acting as a window into the intimate lives of family, friends, influencers, and celebrities all in the same feed, it can feel as though we know the famous people we follow. Sure, they don't have a clue about who we are, but that doesn't necessarily make the emotional bond we feel any less real. So it could be a a real person, like a sports figure, a singer, whatever, or it could be a fictional character. We can become attached to either of them. But it's not reciprocal because the person on the other end, if they are a real person, they may not know you exist, like literally at all. And if they're a fictional character, obviously they don't know that you exist at all. This is Lynn Zubernis. I'm a clinical psychologist and a professor at Westchester University. And one of my main areas of research is fan psychology and the benefits of fandom. So I've written a lot of books on that topic. And there's a pretty good reason why, too. So about almost 20 years ago now, I fell in love with a television show and really fell down the rabbit hole and fell hard. So as a psychologist and a researcher, My first thought was, is this actually okay? Or have I lost my mind? Is this a bad idea? So I started digging into the research because I was a little worried about myself and I wanted to see if I was okay. And then some of it was pretty pathologizing at the time, especially the psychological research. So I thought I probably should do my own research and, you know, try to find out what's really happening here because that pathologizing research wasn't really matching up well with what I was experiencing myself as a fan. What she found out was that one-sided emotional connection we feel towards a famous person or fictional character can be defined as a relationship, a parasocial relationship. A parasocial relationship, which sounds really scary when you (laughs) say the word, but really isn't, is just a relationship that you form with someone, an attachment relationship that you form with someone where it is not reciprocal. So it's it's not an equal relationship. I understand this term goes back to the 1950s. So how has our understanding of this concept changed since it was first coined? Yes, that's the Horton and Wohl study back in the 1950s that is one of the sort of foundational studies in fan studies and one of the first ones that I ran into when I decided to research this and a pretty pathologizing study It turns out that a lot of the early research and and still some of the psychological research today was really looking at the extreme end of a continuum. So they were really looking at a thing called celebrity worship. And there are now actual scales that some of research uses to see where somebody is on the celebrity worship scale. So certainly it's possible for a parasocial relationship to be delusional, which was kind of how it was presented in the early research that does not happen very often. I've been doing this, you know, I've been immersed in fandom myself and also researching it for 20 years. I can count on a couple of maybe fingers and toes how many people sort of lost the thread and really thought they were having a relationship with a celebrity. It doesn't really happen 
that often. Fans are aware that it's not an equal relationship, but they also are aware that they're getting a lot of benefits out of the parasocial relationship. So with platforms like Instagram and TikTok allowing us near unlimited access to the personal lives of celebrities, how is that changing the nature of these relationships? Yeah, I think it's it's actually made parasocial relationships more intense and in some ways maybe more fulfilling from the fan side because there's at least a perception that these relationships are a little less one-sided because the fan has more access and because, frankly, celebrities are aware of parasocial relationships too and they are trying to cultivate them. I mean, the best way to have a passionate fan base who's going to invest in your career and buy concert tickets or whatever is to give a little back so that the relationship at least appears a little less one-sided. Obviously, it's still extremely one-sided, but that but that perception feels really rewarding to fans. Can parasocial relationships happen with anybody you follow online or does it have to be a celebrity? I think the definition of celebrity itself has just really changed, so it can happen with people that you follow online who are not traditional celebrities, you know, somebody who has a a YouTube channel or runs an ASMR channel or something, or is a gamer who, you know, plays video games for you to watch along with them or has a podcast. All of these people are not celebrities by the traditional definition, but absolutely people develop parasocial relationships with those people. Yeah. Can you talk a bit about what causes so many of us to experience such strong feelings of like comfort and security from these non-reciprocal connections? Yeah, that happens because this is attachment. Attachment is a really basic biological drive that is hardwired into any of us. And in an evolutionary sense, it's there because in order to survive, we had to develop an attachment to our caretakers, which When you have an attachment, you want to have proximity, you want to stay close to that person, that attachment figure, and being close to them provides this sense of safety and felt security. Well, we also do that with fictional characters and with celebrities. So once we develop that attachment to them, it feels really good to be in their presence in some way, whether that's your favorite team at a football game or going to a Taylor Swift concert and trying to be near the stage or just, you know, watching an episode of Friends on TV and feeling like, oh, these are the people who I'm close to. This is these are my attachment figures, these familiar faces. We attach to people when their faces are familiar to us. And that obviously started with people in our face-to-face life being close to us. But now it happens if you watch an episode of Friends every day at three o'clock to kind of chill out. Those faces are also familiar. But if it's so natural for us to feel this, why don't we all have parasocial relationships? I think people differ in how many parasocial relationships or really how many attachment relationships they feel like they need. We can't attach to 2,500 people. We're not built to do that. It's a relatively small group of people. And I think some people don't really feel the need for that. And it also depends on what is happening in that person's life. Like it's, it's well known that people develop passionate fandoms when they're in transition times in their life. So at what point then does the parasocial relationship become unhealthy? Like where's that line? I think it becomes unhealthy, like anything becomes unhealthy when it starts to interfere 
with your life in a negative way. So if you have a parasocial relationship to Taylor Swift that really trumps every other relationship in your life, that, if it keeps happening, can start to not be healthy. And then the other way is the way I talked about before, which I think is not very common, which is when people lose the thread that it is a parasocial relationship and it is a one-way relationship and start to think I'm kind of special to this person, this celebrity. When they sing, they're singing to me. When they tweeted that, they're tweeting to me, which which does you know, tip over into delusional. I just don't think that happens very often. Right, right. But even if they're not individually damaging to a person, can online fan communities go too far? Like I'm thinking here of the way they'll sometimes, you know, they can go after someone who's perceived as attacking the celebrity, that it's just in the nature of these online spaces in particular that they can turn into these sort of pylons. Yeah, unfortunately, that's really true. Like one of the benefits of fandom is it does allow people to be really passionate about something and it does allow people to craft their identity within the fandom group. But the flip side of that is that the fandom group and their identity as part of that fandom group becomes really personally important to people. So now you've got in-group, out-group behavior going on. And social media makes for a perfect platform for piling on and trolling and vicious attacks behind some measure of anonymity. So the fandom community, tons of benefits, but can it be a really toxic place? Yes, it it absolutely can. If you're going through a hard time or experiencing maybe chronic loneliness, how can this kind of intimacy help? It helps because, again, our brains don't distinguish a whole lot between how we are interacting with our attachment figures. So there's a thing called social surrogacy theory, which lets us know that you experience that same sense of felt belongingness when you are at a Taylor Swift concert with other fans or when you are watching your favorite episode of Supernatural and seeing that that would be me (laughs) and seeing those characters that are so familiar that are now attachment figures for you, there have actually been experiments that you experience kind of the same brain chemical response as when you are sitting in your dining room having dinner with your closest friends or your close family. So we really do get that feeling of belongingness that is, it's so important to humans. Is there something to be said about the kind of freedom of this type of intimate connection since there's really nothing expected from you in return? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it's much harder to have an actual relationship (laughs) in some ways than it is to have a parasocial relationship, right? Dean Winchester has never once complained about the way that I love watching him on Supernatural, whereas my partner, my children, my parents, my friends, you know, periodically we have to hash things out because somebody wants to do something one way and somebody wants to do something the other way. And that said, it's not a replacement either, for these more interactive, more equal, reciprocal relationships. It's just different. And so knowing what you know now, what would you say to your past self experiencing these intense parasocial feelings and and wondering if it was a good or a bad thing? I would say what I did eventually say to my past self, which is, it's okay. Do you have to think carefully about when you're going to decide to fly across the country to go to a fan convention or across the ocean or whatever. 
yeah, you got to check your bank account first. You got to see what your children are up to and are you expected to be somewhere? Do they need you? You got to check in with your partner. Like you do have to do it in a way that is reasonable. But after that is done, dig in and enjoy it. It is going to give you countless hours of satisfaction. It's going to encourage your creativity in a way that other groups that you belong to are not going to do. It's going to catapult you back into writing and never let you stop. Even when you say you want to stop writing books, nope, you're going to keep doing it because it's going to be encouraged within that community. So it, for me, it's been a really good thing. Lynn, thanks so much for your insights on this. Absolutely. I love talking about this. So thanks for having me. Lynn Zubernis is a clinical psychologist and professor at Westchester University in Pennsylvania. Whether they're one-sided or mutual, digital or IRL, our relationships mean a lot to us. Losing someone we develop feelings for can really hurt, even if that someone isn't technically a real person. Earlier this year, a generative AI companionship app known as Replica underwent a software update. Overnight, it erased the chatbot's ability to engage in sexual intimacy. And many users were heartbroken, equating the love and loss they felt to that of a real human-to-human relationship. Humans are built to project our emotions into other beings, into nature, into works of art, and even into inanimate objects. There's a TED Talk I saw years ago of a stick figure, and when people watch it, they feel an emotional relationship with the moving stick figure, when it slips, when it puts its arms up in victory. So the fact that AI bots can be sources of relationship is no surprise, I think. It takes advantage of our tendency to anthropomorphize. This is Jody Halpern. She's a philosopher, psychoanalytic psychiatrist, and professor of bioethics and medical humanities at the University of California, Berkeley. Her ongoing research involves the ethics of innovative technologies, including relational uses of AI. What's special about AI bots, and it'll become even more powerful as they incorporate large language models, is they can mimic the specific words and ideas of the user. So they can also do something very powerful, which is give the user the sense that the AI, quote-unquote, empathizes with them. And that creates a, a sense of a connection and belonging that's very unusual. Yeah. Do you think, though, that people are surprised by the intensity of the intimacy or the, or the attachment that they experience when they use these chatbots? Yes, I do. And there's a lot of anecdotes about that. Um, what people find is that they begin to have a connection to the bot that actually, and this is part of the problem, can become much more appealing than talking to actual people. And I think that one of the things that people don't realize is that not all attachments are equally healthy. I mean, we know that in some ways in life, but they're not based on the same parts of the brain and the same parts of our physiology. There's a form of attachment that forms with addiction. And these bots are actually created the same way social media and gaming is created to create irregular rewards that can create dopamine surges in our brain, just like slot machines, etc. So there's a lot built into some of these social media bots 
the bots that are used by social media companies as opposed to mental health companies to make us addicted. So that what happens is users start using the bot a little, and then they start needing to be just like we need to be online more and more when we're subject to these engineering forms of irregular rewards. People become more and more addicted to having to talk to the bot more and more of their day. And that creates a feeling that people experience as deep attachment and closeness, but it's also not necessarily the best way to form a deep attachment. Yeah. Is there an example that springs to mind of someone who developed a a close relationship to a companion chatbot? Yes. One of them is a a nurse who was in her late 40s, early 50s, and she was really in a very difficult position in life. She had two kids of her own, and then she and her husband fostered two kids. So by the time this was happening, they were all teenagers, four teenagers, and her her husband passed away, and she had to work as a nurse to support the family and then deal with all their problems, some of which were very severe as teens, and she was very isolated. There was no room in her life for reaching out to friends, for doing other things, and she was becoming increasingly depressed and overwhelmed with parenting issues. And she found that her chatbot provided help on a daily basis, someone to share parenting questions with and talk to and to get get positive reinforcement that she was doing okay. And it significantly helped her. I know that you have concerns about, in particular, the marketing of, of some of these chatbots, but just can we expand on what the potential benefits of these type of AI human relationships might be? Uh, I think the biggest thing that the bots can provide, and some of the better mental health um, companies are focusing on these, is they can be a good form of cognitive behavioral therapy, which has always been something people can do by themselves with a pen and paper. Um, but now it's easier with an app or a bot. So if you have certain kinds of phobias or social anxieties, sometimes using or other kinds of issues, sometimes doing cognitive behavioral therapy where you know you're talking to an app or a bot, but it's helping you talk to yourself in a way that's more constructive. I think of it as a smart journal and it can be very helpful and and also helpful for anxiety, the bots that emphasize mindfulness practices. So I think practices that always were meant for us to essentially do by ourselves that aren't based on a feeling of love or that we really are in a relationship with the bot, but the other kinds of mental health needs we have, which are many, are much better um, uses of these bots. Yeah, so thinking about it more in terms of like the analogy of a coach or even a a self-help workbook, but in a different format rather than as a companion? Exactly, exactly. So let's dig into some of the risks and potential harms in developing such a deep connection or sense of trust with an AI chatbot. How do you see that? Well, first of all, um, why are they so popular right now? Well, we have a crisis of loneliness. 51% of people in the U.S., I don't know in Canada, 51% of people in the U.S. suffer from extreme loneliness. And we have depression and anxiety. So first of all, we're kind of all desperately in need of connection and reassurance. And we're worried about the world. So there's a lot of anxiety. So the risks and potential harms of the bots is that they're advertised on Facebook groups and other things to, they, they target that market. These companies are targeting us at our most vulnerable moments. And yet the bots, which then people form these very close relationships with, abandon people when they actually have suicidal ideation. How do they abandon people? The bot does nothing for you. Even the mental health bots say, at that moment, instead of stay online with me, they say, find a real 
therapist or call 911. Mm. They advertise, literally advertise themselves as a trusted empathetic friend or trusted empathetic therapist. And then you become more isolated from your actual friends or therapists. You talk to them all the time and you become vulnerable and you share that you're really worried about something like killing yourself. And then they say, oh, well, go find help. So number one problem with the bots is they encourage vulnerability and they abandon people or don't help them at those times. Number two biggest problem with the bots is what I mentioned earlier is they create the risk of addiction. The third risk, which has been in the media a lot, is those dramatic cases when the bots go rogue. So there was a young man in the UK in about 20, in mid twenties, whose bot told him to try to assassinate the queen. He made an attempt and his case was just um, in court in the UK, but he was sentenced to jail for most of his life. So presumably that's based on these systems using generative AI, which have a tendency, as we know, to hallucinate. Sometimes they'll do these things that are unexpected and produce conversational results that are obviously unwanted. But what if a bot doesn't abandon someone per se, as you said in that first example, but suddenly changes? Like, for example, what happened after the Replica software update where some of the services that the, that Replica offered changed? Well, there was a, a tremendous outpouring of grief from the users who had had very romantic, intimate sexual relationships with bots that no longer had that, or other people who just had other kinds of relationships that they found um, very central to their lives that were cut off. And I think the public didn't understand that this was real grief, but it was, and people really suffered and people went through full-fledged grief and despair. Um, one of the things that came out of that that I am um, studying a little bit, but I think is fascinating, is that one of the things that did happen, ironically, is some of them then joined actual Facebook and other groups. And so they found ways of connecting with other humans who were also grieving the loss of their chatbots. So I find that interesting because then they were actually reaching out to other humans. I wish they just had been able to do that in the first place. Yeah. So what is that line between these bots being, you know, a helpful prosthetic for people who are experiencing loneliness or want to work on their social anxiety, etc. And flipping over into separating you from your connection to other human beings? Like, are there warning signs that you need to be aware of? I think because the technology is um, for profit, run by highly aggressive for-profit companies, and we have a highly unregulated system, the odds that it will be a safe thing for someone who becomes highly dependent upon it are, it's problematic. Mm. I mean, I think for a user who's not in the extreme loneliness, depression, anxiety, people that are not actually being marketed to, but who is not otherwise going to become really emotionally dependent on the bot, there are very good uses. But the problem is the whole marketing model because is to reach out to this huge population of customers who are going to be vulnerable. And my biggest concern is that it's not a one-to-one -one relationship with a bot and a person. That's not the issue. The issue is a, an extremely powerful company is manipulating you as a vulnerable person for profit purposes. I'm Nora Young. Today on Spark, we're talking about intimacy in a digital age as part of our series, Being Human Now. Right now, my guest is Jody Halpern, a leading researcher on AI ethics, bioethics, and mental health. We're talking about relationships with companionship bots. What concerns you most about how these relationship bots are being marketed to people? 
Well, first of all, there's a marketing to people when they have significant mental health needs, even though the companies do not explicitly and won't call themselves mental health companies because then they'd have to be regulated by the FDA. So first of all, there's kind of deceptive marketing in that way because they're saying we can really, if you look at the just the first page of any of these companies, they give you all these examples of people whose depression lessened, whose loneliness lessened and felt significantly better. And yet they're not really going through the regulation of a, of a kind of service that should provide that kind of intimate care. But the second thing that really bothers me in terms of marketing is marketing to children and adolescents and young adults who have the highest level of extreme loneliness in our society. Because one of the reasons that children and young adults, adolescents and young adults have such high levels of extreme loneliness, I'm a psychiatrist and as a person who works in mental health, is has been shown to be related to being online eight to 10 hours a day, as opposed to with real people. And, mm. and those kids and young people are actually much more comfortable with talking to an, uh, an app than people because it becomes a kind of pervasive societal issue of social anxiety. And what's happening is even mental health apps that have been started by psychologists are deliberately marketing and giving themselves for free to schools, etc., where they can get that group of kids as an audience. So it's, it's it reminds me of, you know, things that have been done by like tobacco companies and other things, um, which is reach out to kids when they're young, get them addicted to a service and have a customer base for life. So where are we at in terms of holding tech companies to account and, and regulating the kind of profound impact that these kinds of software can have on users' emotional well-being? Well, we're nowhere in the United States. I don't know uh, enough about what's happening in Canada, um, but I know that in the U.S., we have a famously Section 230, which is a part of an act that um, years ago allowed platforms, social media and other platforms, not to be responsible for their content. Now, this is content, so it can be regulated, but it hasn't been specified how we regulate content. We had in mid-October, um, some legislators in the U.S. put in a no-fakes bill that it's more like protecting artists whose likenesses are being mimicked, but it has relevance. So we what we need is more constructive, specific, positive regulation of these things. I do want to mention one thing because of my critique of the apps going into the schools. I don't want to see kids committing suicide. And if there's kids with who are po- cognitive behavioral therapy or other mental health applications online can help them, I'm all for that. I just think that we, we don't want to be stupid about not investing in actual social sources of support, actual therapists and human. I think we need to do something about our, our youth not having enough human contact. And I think these apps for profit reasons can become a substitute for that. But I'm not against the, the, the judicious and wise use of, of uh, apps like that can be used as smart journals to help kids as well as adults. Mm-hmm. So do you think we have to avoid anthropomorphizing these things as com- as companions? Exactly, yeah. exactly. If we told kids, look, use this to work on mindfulness practices for yourself, cognitive behavioral practices for yourself, but this isn't really a friend that's going to mm-hmm. love you, and you need help getting to where you can make friends with real humans. Yeah. Can you tell me about the Engineering Empathy Project and what you've learned about how technology simulating empathy changes our sense of self or our relationships? Yeah, that project I started over five years ago, actually. And, um, but it's, but I'm getting to the point now where I'm, uh, more looking forward to writing a book about it. And, um, what we see is just in general that 
I worked, I started looking at elders that had sort of robotic care or, or diabetes, um, um, dolls or, um, pet seals. You might know about some of those things, but, um, all of those, there's all these ways that AI for the past few years, but especially now can give us a sense of reassurance and belonging that have value for people when they're extremely lonely and isolated. And so they seem to provide a kind of empathy because they're specifically designed to mimic our worldview. This is what people need to understand. They, they can learn, and this is getting better with large language models. They can learn how we think, what we fear, what our world is, and they can mimic it and reflect it back to us. And that is a part of what it, what empathy can do. When a person is empathizing with you, part of what you're getting, and with sympathy as well as empathy, is that someone is resonating with your worldview. Sure. But my, my work for 30 years has shown that what's therapeutic about empathy in psychotherapy and medical practice and other settings is not just that reflecting back, reassuring your current feelings, but the experience that you're with another person who has their own world, their own experience that is different from yours. And yet this other distinct person with their whole real human experience is encountering you across the gap of being two separate people who can then genuinely be curious about each other. And that engagement is what's really the most powerful. And that can only be faked by a bot. A bot doesn't have a world. It doesn't have a history. So it can't help us do what I think is the most central thing, which is experience empathic curiosity from another being with its own world. And we can never... So why is that important? What I was thinking about more recently is the same tendency that's making people seek out authoritarian rulers is what I think makes us so vulnerable to these bots, mm-hmm. which is that with 51% extreme loneliness and extreme anxiety and fear in the world, I think people are so desperate for reassurance and belonging to the, the same tribe, the same thing, and having their in it being in an echo chamber of their own words that, that they're, they're losing the whole other part of empathy, which is this empathic curiosity, where you grow from engaging with another mind. And I think that we are in a world where that's not even what people need because the more fundamental need just to be reassured is so great because of the level of fear and, and extreme loneliness. So it makes me really sad because I think we're, so we're engineering a form of empathy that will ultimately leave, leave us solipsistic and alone. Yeah. Jody, thanks so much for your insights on this. Thank you so much, Noor. Bye-bye. Jody Halpern is a professor of bioethics and medical humanities at the University of California, Berkeley. Jody's final point, while sobering, is so in tune with what this episode on intimacy is about, being alive to the difference between a technological system engineered to mirror our worldview and the challenging but powerful work of building bridges human to human, not running from technology, but finding and keeping the human in our technological age. You've been listening to Spark. The show is made by Michelle Parisi, Samrui Johannes, Megan Carty, and me, Nora Young. And by Stephanie Tong, Kelsey Wonderlin, Lindsay Burness, and Jody Halpern. Subscribe to Spark on the free CBC Listen app or your favorite podcast app. I'm Nora Young. Talk to you soon.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.